Is your job search stuck? Maybe you're not getting any interviews with employers, or maybe you are, but no job offers. Or you may be new and not even know where to start. This is Charles Maxwood, and I'm releasing a new course and ebook on how to find a job as a software developer. The course walks you through the process of finding the types of companies you want to work for, getting their attention, and putting your best foot forward as the candidate they want. I've coached dozens of developers in looking for jobs and have been able to help several people find jobs within two weeks, two months. So whether you're new to development, can't find a great job that fits what you want, or looking for remote work from an area without a strong tech community, I can help. Go to getacoderjob.com and sign up today. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another My Ruby Story. This week, we're talking to Nell Shamrell Harrington. Good morning. Uh, it's great to be here, and good to see you again, Chuck. Yeah, you too. Now, we haven't talked for a while. Of course, we, we keep rescheduling on each other, so... True. Yep. It's, it's both of our fault, but uh, do you want to just remind people who you are, what you do? Sure. I'm Nell Shamrell Harrington. I am a currently a principal software engineer at Chef. Chef, we do infrastructure-focused software, ops-focused software. You can check us out at chef.io. And additionally, I'm also CTO of a veterans nonprofit called Operation Code. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we do is we teach veterans software engineering skills through providing scholarships to coding boot camps, connecting them with mentors in the industry. Basically, we want to make it so you finish your military service, come to us, we can give you a purpose right away and then work with you to move you into those high paying technical jobs. Makes sense. And uh, just to give people some context as far as Ruby Rogues goes, you were on episode 105, which was in 2013. Yeah. Oh, wow. That was a long time ago. Yep. Yep. This year, 2018, as we record this, episode 348 about wow. continuous automation, chef, inspect, habitat, and all that stuff with Nathan Harvey. Yep, it's it's Ruby Rogues has always been one of my favorite shows, so it's a, always a lot of fun to be on. Oh, thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, I kind of wanted to spotlight you and talk about your background and where you can mm-hmm. come from and what you've done and things like that. And so uh, let's let's get started doing that. I'm curious, mm-hmm. how did you get into programming? Well, it's it's a bit of a weird story. So I was a theater major in college, but I did computer science courses on the side and during the summer. So I did it kind of the opposite of the way most people do it. And part of it was I was on a bunch of theater scholarships. I knew I would probably not have that opportunity to do theater full time again. So I graduated college in 2007. Big financial crisis hit in 2008. So if well pay or living wage theater jobs are very hard to come by even in mm-hmm. the best of economic times and just there were none at at that point so i uh, started i found work in as an administrative assistant at the university of washington physics department up here in seattle and once they figured out i knew how to code they started giving me more and more coding assignments uh, i was mainly I, I did some PHP apps for them and then some uh, .NET apps. And through that experience, experience, you know, when I had taken my programming classes, it was kind of like taking almost pure mathematics in that, though programming is applied mathematics, but when you're doing just the mathematics portion, it's hard to envision if you haven't experienced yet, how does this apply to real life? Right. So I, 
I think that was part of the reason I just did some courses on the side. I didn't really pursue it is because I didn't quite see how this how this worked in the real world. And I was shocked to find when I started doing real business applications for real businesses at the University of Washington, how much creativity is involved in it and how essential my theater experience was there because I knew how to take projects with lots and lots of different elements and weave them together into something cohesive. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's, that's made a big difference. So after University of Washington, I was briefly at LexisNexis working in with electronic evidence, which sounds a lot cooler than it actually is. And I'll leave it at that because there's not a lot I can say publicly about what we're doing, but, uh, or what we were doing, but yeah, well, <laughs> we were mainly writing SQL queries on uh, databases of electronic evidence for lawyers to get the information they needed. After that, and this is when I started getting into Ruby, uh, my friend Renee De- Renee she was Renee Devorsnay then, she's Renee Hendrickson now, uh, now also the CEO of Travis CI. She was one of my dearest friends in college, and we were roommates before college, roommates after college. And she sent me a message saying, you know, I'm working with Ruby at this company called Blue Box, which used to host Ruby Rogues. And I think I'd like to bring you on as a junior developer. Are you up for trying out some Ruby? And I was. So I spent some nights and weekends getting to know the language, which was different than the .NET .NET languages, but not horribly, and discovered I really liked it. I remember in the, the formal interview for the position, Renee asked me, what do you like about Ruby? And I told her, well, it's cute. You 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 <laughs> pop things off of arrays and you push them into arrays and just it it's a quirky language and that fit my personality uh, to a T, which I think Renee knew when she told me to check out Ruby. Very cool. It's it's interesting too, just to go back to some of the things that you talked about there. Not being able to see, for example, the real world application mm-hmm. of some of the stuff. I definitely identify with that. I was a computer engineering major. I took a whole bunch of computer science classes. And I thought computer science and programming was like the dumbest thing ever. Mm -hmm. And so when I graduated, I was going to go into IT. And I wound up working on a a real app that real people used. And that's Mm -hmm. when I clicked. So yeah, I really get that. And yeah, you know, the the other thing is just, just, I I also want to highlight it was somebody you knew that got you into Ruby. And I find that that is a very, very common thing where Mm -hmm. people get into programming or into a particular language or framework because of somebody they knew. Mm -hmm. Yep, very much so. It's, uh, I mean, the personal endorsement for a language or for a framework or something is I, no matter how much marketing a a company does, that's the the personal stories, the personal testimonies of someone, you know, not just someone listed on the website that, that make the biggest difference in whether you want to try something out. Yeah. The other bit of that is also, I I talk to a lot of new developers that are looking for jobs. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that you kind of talked about that I'd like to highlight is just that it was somebody you knew that said, hey, I think you'd be a good fit mm-hmm. here. And that's how you got that job. And that's also a pretty common thing, I find. Right. And something we've tried to do in Operation Code is a lot of us who are more experienced in the industry have lots of very deep connections in it. Mm-hmm. And trying to use that 
personal networking power to get companies or get a recruiter or soft or an engineering manager who's hiring, take a look at this candidate who you normally wouldn't, maybe based on resume. I mean, they don't cross all the T's and dot all the I's in your position description, but I know them. I know how they learn. I've taught them. Mm-hmm. I give them a chance. Take yeah. it, bring them in, work through a problem with them, give them a chance. And often it goes very, very well. Yep, yeah, absolutely. So we talked a little bit about how you got into Ruby. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, the Blue Box Group, they did a lot of stuff with Ruby. Mm-hmm. Um, they've kind of pivoted into other things. And I, I'm not sure I completely followed all of the things that they've done. Well, they were acquired by IBM, which was oh, okay. the, the big one, uh, and made more of a pivot to OpenStack. Right. One thing that I am curious about is with your experience in Ruby, you've worked for Chef, you've worked mm-hmm. for you know all, all these different companies. What's right. kind of been your favorite thing to work on? in Ruby? Let's see here. I'd have to say uh, when I first started working at Chef, I worked on the supermarket product, Mm -hmm. which is where people who create Chef community cookbooks that they want to share with the world or people who want to find community cookbooks. Cookbook is a Chef recipe, which is basically a configuration for infrastructure. Why write your own when someone in the community already has? And what I enjoyed about that was we created a Ruby on Rails site to foster people being able to to share those cookbooks. But for the first time, we weren't just running a site that people were using. We, a lot of people, a lot of customers came to us after Supermarket Premiere and said, hey, we love this. We love the ability to browse cookbooks. It's a really friendly experience, but we're behind a firewall. We can't use the public one and we can't uh, pull stuff off the public one without thoroughly vetting it first. Can you give us a private version that we can upload our own cookbooks to and share within our organization? And so the answer was yes. Um, mm-hmm. But that was, I mean, surprisingly, the first time I'd worked on a piece of software that was packaged and distributed. And it was very interesting to see the differences between having one that you know we updated, we maintained, and then also creating generic versions for people mm-hmm. to create, maintain, add-on themselves. It was an interesting project. What I loved was the breadth of the industries that I have an effect on because almost you know, across our CEO is likes to say every company is a software company now, and it's true, uh, but so, so is every Yep, every government organization. So is every academic university. And seeing all these entities from these different industries using my work was a phenomenal experience and seeing the scale that I could have that effect on through a Ruby on Rails application. I mean, people say Ruby on Rails doesn't scale. Well, I call BS on that because it does if you do it right or if you're distributing a Ruby on Rails application. Absolutely. So uh, let's talk about a a little bit about your work at Chef. So you worked on supermarket, and then what did you call the distributed piece of it? Supermarket? It was also the supermarket. Uh, originally, we called them mini-marts because we like food things at <laughs> Chef, as you can probably tell. Uh, but that, that, that didn't quite catch on. Awesome. So, yeah, exactly. So we used a tool called Omnibus, Chef Omnibus. Mm-hmm. And what that did is it we would build the package with super, the supermarket Rails application in it. We'd also include all the dependencies that you would need. So you would be able to take just that package, that dev package, yum package, whatever is appropriate, mm-hmm. and install it as is on any piece of infrastructure that you needed, which our customers who could not access the outside internet really, really appreciated. Yeah, that makes sense. 
I worked in a university. Mm-hmm. I worked at BYU and helped mm-hmm. manage the servers over there. And a lot of the stuff that we did, like it, it wasn't so much that we couldn't access the internet at all from the servers, mm-hmm. but it was very limited. And uh, yeah, so I actually wound up writing a whole bunch of bash scripts to mm-hmm. distribute yep. updates and stuff. And yeah, something like Chef would have been really, really nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, what did you do at Blue Box? I was a uh, software engineer there, mainly working on, we had a, we were a hosting company and we had a Rails application that served as a graphic user interface for spitting up new VMs, spitting them down, managing the billing on your account. It it was, ideally we wanted to be thought of as infrastructure as a service organization. So I helped write the code that facilitated that. Gotcha. What are you working on now? I'm still a chef, and I'm working mainly on a project called Habitat. And what Habitat is, is it's kind of like the omnibus software thing that I just described. But what it is, is it's technology that allows you to take an application, you write a bash script or PowerShell if you're using Windows for how that application should be deployed, and then we package that and everything dependent in it in one package. But it doesn't stop there. You can then take that one package, we call it a heart file, habitat artifact, though sometimes we say it's because we heart you. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can take that and export it to Docker container images. That's by far the most popular. Kubernetes, Helm manifests, Cloud Foundry applications. The idea is we want you to easily be able to create one package from your software with very minimal overhead and then be able to export that wherever you need it. Because the truth is, as much as people, you know, try to argue about what the one true way of deploying software is, there is no one true way and that it's always going to depend on the business's needs and the application's needs. And moreover, it's going to change over time. I mean, you might start running it just on a bare metal VM and then realize, oh, I need to put some aspects of this application in containers. Habitat allows you to really easily do that. So that's what I've been working on, which is a distributed or the, the, the format of the project is distributed microservices, which after my first week, I said to someone, I thought I understood microservices, but I realized I don't really. And their <laughs> response was, don't worry, no one really does. Uh, we're, <laughs> we're, we're trying it out and we're figuring out the best way right. as we go along, which is the nature of bleeding edge technology, I think. Yep. We're, we're a lot less informed than we like to think that people are. Uh, so that's, that's been my, my main source of work uh, at Chef lately. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about Operation Code for a minute. Yeah. So how did you get involved there? Well, both my parents were Air Force officers. And I had wanted to go into the military, but I had a medical disqualification, which prevented that. Mm-hmm. So I went into you know, private industry, but I was... At least one of my parents was in the military from when from age zero to age 14. So I grew up you know, very much in military culture. And it was always familiar and I always missed it, I found, after uh, both my parents retired after serving 20 years each from the military. And I was thinking to myself, because I had friends who were coming out of the military, you know, coming back after being deployed many times in Iraq and Afghanistan and other places. And once they were out of the military, not knowing what to do next. Mm -hmm. And that's often one of the most dangerous 
times for a veteran in terms of mental health because you in the military you have a sense of purpose you know exactly what you're doing almost all if not all the time and you know that it's serving a big picture it's very different when you're out and then trying to make your way in the civilian world which is so very different so i put on twitter does anyone know of any technology open source projects or organizations that are working with veterans and someone immediately recommended operation code to me uh, operation code was very new at that point. It was only a handful of people, but I reached out to the then CEO, David Molina, over Twitter and said, hey, I hear you have this project. This is the experience I have. I have deep open source experience, a lot of experience in the industry. My parents were both military officers. I know military culture. How can I help? And that was three years ago. And it's grown since then. We serve about 3,000 veterans right now. And our main, I mean, we have physical chapters throughout the country who do meetups, Mm -hmm. but our main source of communication has always been our community Slack. And the great thing about Slack is we're a registered nonprofit, so we do get the paid version for free, which means we have the full full searchable history. Uh, so if someone asks a question or is just getting started, doesn't feel comfortable asking a question in a channel just yet, they can easily do a search of three plus years of history, seeing has this come up before, uh, how have people solved this in the past. And the personal communications, our veterans have told us, uh, personal connections is why they keep coming back. Uh, even after they've landed that tech job or even after they decide, now well, maybe I'll move on to something else. We're, we're a community of veterans and military families and people who support them first and foremost. And that shared level of understanding has been extremely valuable to our members, we've been told. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I spent a little bit of time around Air Force in particular mm-hmm. when I was a missionary in Italy. Mm-hmm. Um, we were out near Aviano Air Base, which is up near Porto None in, in Aviano, Italy. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it was really interesting just to see the, cu- the culture there. It, it is a little different from what you'd expect. Mm-hmm. It's not just American culture somewhere else. And then, yeah, uh, my brother-in-law was in the Air Force and he just, um, he was medically discharged last year. He messed up his back while mm-hmm. you know, serving in the military. And so, yeah, you know, you, you see this transition and yeah, I mean, they make sure you know where you're supposed to be mm-hmm. and what you're supposed to be doing. And then all of a sudden it's this big wide open option and you don't know which of your skills actually apply Mm -hmm. to the rest of the world. And so it's, yeah, you wind up in this position where exactly, like you said, it's like, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. You know, nobody's hiring me to point guns at people Mm -hmm. or, you know, my my brother-in-law ran uh, heavy machinery, but, you know, because of his injury, he couldn't do that anymore. So then it's, I don't have the skill that I need to actually go Mm -hmm. get the job that I'm qualified for. So yeah, I mean, it, it's it's tricky. And so yeah, I it really, is. really admire a lot of this, where it's, you know what, the, these folks have sacrificed for us. So let's, let's make a difference for them too. Right. I think what solidified it for me was a friend of mine who's in the Navy posted something about Facebook on Facebook about not liking when people thanked her for her service. So I reached out to her and I said, you know, if you're comfortable, could you tell me a little bit more about this? Because I, I've always been taught from a you know, very young age, that's what you do when someone has been in the yeah. military. And she said, it can't, particularly now when so many have deployed to war zones, it can come across as better you than me, or it can come across as empty when it's empty words when you're thanking someone for their service, but you're not providing them a path to employment or not providing 
a, a way for them to use what they learned in the service in civilian life. And that was very powerful for me. And I said, okay, I need to do more on this. And many of our volunteers have told us the same thing. They've realized, you know, just just saying thank you isn't enough. I, I have the ability to do more. Uh, I have the time to do more. Let's do it. Yeah. So on that note, I know this is about you, but I'm curious, mm-hmm. how do people get involved in Operation Code? Head on over to our website, operationcode.org. Click on the join link. And you, you don't have to be a veteran to join. You, you can join as someone who's interested in volunteering. That will send you an auto invite to our Slack community. And our Slack community is where all the magic happens. So join us, check out some of the channels. We have a little bot that welcomes people whenever a new member joins and you know tells them these are the channels that you might want to check out and just start conversations with people. Uh, feel free to reach out to me. I'm Nell Shamrell in the Operation Code Slack. I, I make an effort to check it at least once daily and we'll, we'll get you involved. Awesome. Anything else that you've done that we should dive into? Oh, uh, let's see here. So I think what I've, though I haven't, Habitat's written in Rust. Uh, so I haven't done a ton of Ruby lately, uh, other than some maintenance things. But what I think, uh, which you alluded to at the beginning of the show, what I think I'm most well known for in the Ruby community is uh, explaining Ruby and regular expressions in a way that people tell me uh, helps a lot. Oddly enough, the way I really learned regular expressions was from the Cucumber book put out by Pragmatic. It had this wonderful step-by-step explanation of this is, this is what a regular expression does. Let's, uh, let's take, uh, take this piece by piece. I remember, I think on that, that episode of Ruby Rogues I was in, uh, James Edward Gray mentioned, yeah, regular expressions kind of look like Snoopy swearing. It's just this <laughs> series of symbols that don't seem to make any sense. And th- there's, a, there's a way to do them in a way that's understandable. And there's some tips, like I use Rubular for most of my regular expressions. And I always, Rubular allows you to create you know, examples, strings of what that regular expression is supposed to match. I always make a permalink of it. I got this tip from Myron Marston of the RSpec project. I always make a permalink and paste it into as a comment in the code. So if anyone comes to that regular expression later, or if I come to it later and I'm not sure what I did, there's an easily accessible link to see this is the kind of string this was meant to match. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard that tip before too. And I really, I think it's helpful because yeah, immediately you can just go see what it's supposed to do or run your you know, run your string against it and make sure Mm -hmm. that it's still, you know, holding up to the assumptions you have or maybe an exception or something like that to the rule. Right. It's, it's, uh, regular expressions can be a lot of fun. It's just, they're, they're mind numbing at first (laughs) until you you start to pick Mm -hmm. up on little bits of the syntax that make it easier to at least get an idea of what it's doing. But having an example string is always, I think, going to be much quicker for someone to pick up and understand. Yep. So one thing I'm curious about, you mentioned that Habitat's written in Rust and that you're mm-hmm. not doing as much Ruby anymore. What's that transition like, you know, going from Ruby to Rust? Are there things that you missed, things that you liked, or things that were hard? So I, uh, I took a course on Latin, or in Latin, in college. Mm-hmm. And learning Rust, reminded me a lot of my first few months, the first few months of learning Rust reminded me a lot of my first few months of learning Latin in that it's a huge learning curve. It's a hockey stick, but the long point, the long end is what comes first. 
However, there was a point I'm in both where I stopped fighting with the language or stopped fighting with the compiler long enough to get an idea of why it was doing things the way it was doing. And then it was beautiful. And what makes it beautiful is it's consistent. In Rust, there's no garbage collector, unlike in Ruby. And the reason for that is there doesn't need to be because Rust allocates memory so precisely and it only allocates it for the specific amount of time that that memory is needed. And then it lets go of it, which makes it, number one, extremely fast, and number two, extremely memory safe. So doing things like back-end microservices, it, it works very, very well for that because the memory needed is so low uh, because it's only using what it needs to exactly when it needs to. So, I mean, there's a, Steve Klobnik wrote a book a while ago on the Rust, or Rust for the Rubyist, which was also helpful. And it was... It, it's a doable transition. It was hard, but it was doable. And I do think my Ruby experience gave me a little bit of a level up in that transition in understanding, even if Russ is doing something differently from Ruby, why it's doing that differently mm -hmm. and the, the purposes, the two, or slightly different purposes the two languages serve. That makes sense. I'm, I'm curious, which language do you like better? Oh, Lord. <laughs> Personally, Ruby. Uh -huh. For the specific work I'm doing with Habitat, definitely Rust. It, it, it works much better than Ruby would for this particular problem set. Mm -hmm. Well, that, you know, that goes back. I w we did an episode of, what was it? React Roundup earlier today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah, we were talking about the trade-offs between higher order components and mm -hmm. uh, render props. And yeah, it was just, hey, you know, use the tool that makes the most sense. And so, yeah, mm -hmm. same thing here, right? makes the most sense for the technical problem and also makes yeah. the most sense for your team yeah. and their level of knowledge and experience. Yeah, exactly. So, so you, you know, it, it might work in Ruby, but the trade-offs make it so that Rust is a better option. Exactly. Yep. Very cool. Well, if people want to find you online, where do they go? Best way is Twitter. I'm at Nell Shamrell. I do not get Twitter notifications on my phone anymore because that was just uh, driving me <laughs> up bet. and down the wall. And my and my wife too. And my two pet bunnies because it would ding and they'd startle saying, what is that? But I check it throughout the day routinely. So tweet at me at, at Nell Shamrell or I don't, my DMs are not open, but feel free to tweet at me and ask, to, uh, ask me to follow you. I will. And then you can DM me. That's a good place to find me on GitHub. I'm the same name, Nell Shamrell. And you can also get some more information about you know, speaking that I've done. I've recently gotten a little back into voice acting and check it out at my uh, website, nellshamrell.com. Awesome. All right. Well, let's do some picks. Do you Sounds some great. Ones? Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter dev chat in the how did you hear about us section. 
Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. I have two. First is a Chrome plugin. There's a very similar one for Firefox. I switch off between the two browsers a lot. And it is the Newsfeed Eradicator for Facebook. And I love that one. <laughs> oh, it's so good. And what it does is basically it just, you know, it alters the, uh, the, the structure of the, the page in your browser so that it removes the newsfeed. And people have asked me, well, what do you do with Facebook then? And I've been on, uh, I was part of, I was one of the, we, the university I was at was one of the first schools to get Facebook in 2004. I said, well, it's taking me back to, you know, maybe 2007, 2008, when I mainly used it just for events. So use it for that. A lot of my friends, that is how we plan get togethers together. Mm-hmm. Uh, I use it for messaging people. Everyone's on Facebook. So I can find whoever I need to message pretty quickly. And I don't need to worry about their phone number changing or their email changing. And then I can set it up to notify me like for close friends or like I, my mother and my sisters, I have it set up to notify me if they make a post. So I'll see that right away. And then if I want to see what someone posted, I can always go to their Facebook page and look there. I don't need to have it in my face. Like it reminds me of this laser cannon just shooting constantly. And it, it's really nice. It's, it's brought, it lets me use the good parts of Facebook, the parts I really like without the really upsetting stuff that uh, we've all experienced over the past few years uh, that tends to go viral. So I love that one. The second, uh, this is a real life one, is a, the Daiso store. We have some of these in Seattle and what they are is they're a Japanese dollar store. They have them in Japan, obviously. I was in Japan in 2011 and got to experience them there. And then they're also expanding I think mostly on the West Coast right now. And what it is, is it's a small, you know, it's a dollar store, but it's not like a junky dollar store uh, as, as we, we might be used to in the States. You know, it's lots of, the Japanese businesses are so good at making products for small spaces. And as I think I mentioned before, maybe in the pre-show stuff, my wife is currently in law school and we're living in a grad student apartment, very close to it. And we don't have a lot of space. So it's been really helpful to get things like organizers from my kitchen or living room, you know, that are very cheap. If we, if we have to recycle them after we move out of this apartment, that's fine. And just, it's, it's, it's really, really useful. And I might go back there if I'm ever doing props for a theater show again, because there's tons of stuff that you can repurpose or like with a glue gun and a few popsicle sticks, make it into something else. So it's, it's very cool. And if you've got one near you, I recommend it. That sounds really, really cool. Yeah. Yeah, I'll tell you, uh, as far as the newsfeed eradicator went, before I found that, I would go on Facebook because I'd, I'd have like coaching on there or you mm-hmm. know some other reason to be on there. And I'd get lost in my feed. Mm-hmm. You know, something interesting would be there, something that I just couldn't help myself but comment on. Mm-hmm. And yeah, now that doesn't happen anymore. I just go in for what I'm there for and then I'm done and I don't lose hours to it. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll back you up on that pick. A few things that I'm going to shout out about. One of them is the Framework Summit. I'm going to mm-hmm. be speaking at that in October. It's going to be here in Park City, Utah. And it's being put on by one of my co-hosts on JavaScript Jabber. But they're going to have the core teams from Vue, Angular, React, and core team members from a number of other uh, frameworks. I think Tom Dale's coming Mm -hmm. from Ember. And yeah, so there are going to be quite a number of folks there. So if you're interested in front-end frameworks and you kind of want to get that cross-pollination, meet new people, check that out. 
It's frameworksummit.com. And then I'm not sure when this comes out. So I'm just going to shout out also, I'm going to be at, I'm going to be in Philadelphia for podcast movement in a couple of weeks. Mm. So if you're in Philadelphia or near Philadelphia and the timing works out, uh, let me know because I love connecting with people. A few other events that I'm planning on attending. I'm also going to be in Las Vegas for CES. So if you're in that area, I'd love to grab lunch or whatever. But yeah, and then the last pick that I have is Home Depot Tool Rental. So I I had to do some work in my yard. And uh, yeah, a a, a tiller is just a little bit more expensive than what I'm willing to, you know, drop my money on. So uh, I just, you know, I rented a hydraulic tiller from Home Depot and that worked out pretty well. So yeah, I've been redoing my lawn, going to be getting some sod in on Saturday and so we just sprayed all the grass with Roundup and then tilled it under. And that's what we're doing on Saturday. So anyway, those are my picks. Thanks for coming, Nell. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm glad this worked out. It was great talking to you and great, great talking to the Ruby community. Again. Yeah, absolutely. I kind of miss seeing you and a number of other people at I'm missing it too. actual yeah. events. But uh, yeah, maybe sometime in the future. Absolutely. All right. We will uh, talk to you later. All right. Take care. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.